0: Welcome to the Connect Church podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. It's going to take just a little while, but eventually today my goal is to be in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. you want to go ahead and turn over there. Like I said, it, it's going to be just a minute. God has been doing some things in my heart over the last year or so. And a lot of this series is just a culmination of that. And so I want to give you the context of this message is, uh, is really, for me, where the meat is in it. Um, so I just say that to say, Hold on for a little while. Some of you will come to me from time to time and say, I just love when you get into the history. Well, you're going to really like this one. Uh, Some of you say, I really hate when you get into history. And some of you say, I really hate when you preach at all. So I get it. Uh, This message is not for you. It's for those. Okay, that one person who likes the history. Okay which is me, okay, full disclosure, I love it. I love the context of this. And so uh, I, I think in order to fully understand what's happening in Daniel chapter three, we have to go way, 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 way back. And I'm only gonna hit the mountain peaks, okay? So Josiah, King Josiah, good King Josiah, godly King Josiah is instituted religious reform in Israel, ultimately in Judah. He broke down all of the pagan altars. He reinstituted worship for God and God alone in Israel. He created this this impetus, this opportunity for a great revival to spread throughout the land. God had gotten a hold of his heart and he is overcoming all of the destruction and all of the brokenness of his predecessors. Now, here's something that I would want you to write down if you're ready to take a note. A man's heart can change the law, but a law cannot change a man's heart. And so while the law is changed, Israel's actions changed. What they did changed, but their hearts were still just going through the motions. So they were doing the right things. But they were not doing them for the right reasons. And so God would have to take very drastic actions to get Israel's attention. The world power at the time of King Josiah. Now, when you're reading the scripture, you think that Israel rules the world all the time. But that's just a glimpse. At, the, at this time, the world's power was, the, uh, was Assyria. And the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. Now, for those of you who are non-history, this won't matter in the end. Okay? So just... Just want to set the larger stage. Remember Israel, or uh, remember Nineveh, remember Jonah. These are the worst guys that history has ever known. And they are ruling the world. And there was an Assyrian province, uh, Babylon, and they rose up against Assy- greater Assyria, and they seized control, and Assyria falls to Babylon. Well, Egypt becomes very concerned about Babylon being in control because they are terrible people too, and they are usurping power around the world, including trying to get into Egypt. And so they took up with Israel. Israel went in with, with Egypt, and they began to do battle with Babylon, and they failed miserably. And sadly, King Josiah died with the Egyptian warriors. So, in 609 B.C., Israel's next king, King Jehoiakim, began to pay Babylon off. It's called tribute. They began to pay tribute. And Nebuchadnezzar would come near, and he would uh, sack a certain section of Jerusalem, and he would say, I need more money, more tribute. They would pony up, pony up, pony up. And he kept wanting more, kept wanting more, kept kept coming. And Jehoiakim just kept paying, kept paying. And finally, Jehoiakim said, you know, enough's enough. We, we, don't, we don't have anything else. And so slowly what was happening is Nebuchadnezzar was taking things that belonged to Israel, to Jerusalem, including, Scripture tells us, that some of the nobles' children, he came in and kidnapped quite a few of them and took them back to Babylon But that wasn't the end. This actual siege took place over the course of 25 years. This is a long enduring thing before the king finally said, we've really got nothing left to give. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and utterly destroyed everything in Jerusalem and wiped them out. Now all the Jews are living in Babylon under captivity. Just want you to know how we got there. You know why it happened? Well, Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 9 tells us, That Israel, that God orchestrated Israel's captivity in Babylon for three reasons. Number one, they were consistently disobedient in their hearts. They were not listening with their ears, though God was trying to tell them what they needed to do. And they continued to worship idols alongside God. The people broke their covenant with God. Josiah worked diligently to reorchestrate what the scripture says we must do. But the people of God, didn't follow suit. It wasn't their external actions that ruined them. I mean, they were going through some of the motions. That should be a lesson to us. Israel didn't know they weren't listening. They just weren't listening. Israel didn't know they were disobedient constantly. They just were going through the motions. They were just living their life. But here's here's, here's the important thing. They were doing the right things, saying the right things, but it's a matter of a heart change. That's what gets God's attention. That's what satisfies his anger. And so it was necessary for God to take good King Josiah. Now watch this. This is very important. See the whole picture. It was important and necessary for God to take good King Josiah and allow him to be killed so that another king could take his place And we could eventually get to the place where there could be some accountability. And Israel is taken into captivity because they would not follow the godly king. Have you ever been... And again, we don't get into parenting today so much. But have you ever been around or maybe some of you have had disobedient children and you tell them what to do and they're slow obeyers? Anybody raised slow obeyers? Uh, And so some families... Uh, will parent in this way. Uh, you better do such and such. One, two, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You've heard it at the grocery store. Uh, it's funny, you, you hear that in a grocery store. You don't hear that in a busy street. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to count to three when their kids are in the middle of the road. So, but anyway, here's what God says. He says, hey, I'm gonna give you, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna follow me, you're gonna worship me. And they didn't, they wouldn't. And so God said, okay, one, I'm going to give you some judges. They wouldn't obey. Two, I'm going to give you prophets. They still wouldn't obey. Two and a half, I'm going to give you a godly king. But they would not. Three, captivity in Babylon. good King Josiah, there was revival. At least the opportunity for revival. I believe near the palace there was revival. The Bible calls him good King Josiah, godly king, young man when he came into the throne too, had every reason to be corrupt. Godliest, one of the godliest kings Israel ever had or Judah ever had. And so no doubt that around him, his nobility followed his leadership. I have, I have very little doubt that those princes and those uh, advisors listened and watched the heart of good King Josiah. And so what we begin to see here is those that got closest to him were on fire for God. Now, Scripture doesn't say this explicitly, but I, I believe that it is taught here. They established faith in their homes, and they taught their children to unflinchingly trust God alone, to serve God completely. And every day it was a matter of sacrifice, obedience, Scripture, honoring God completely, unknowingly why they would need this or how it would be implemented in their life. And Once they had been taught the way of God by their parents... Suddenly, in that moment, in their youth, they were snatched away from mom and dad and forced to live in Babylon. But not before King Josiah influenced moms and dads to raise their children in the ways of God so that when they needed it most, it was already implanted in them. Nebuchadnezzar took this, the Hebrew word is yeled. These, we, we talk about the Hebrew boys, but... We know that they weren't married. There's no possible way for us to know how old they were. Not through the story. It means means youth or boy. It can mean young men or sons. It just means that they don't have families of their own yet. They're still under the authority of their mother and father. That's what the word means. They were taken from the royal family. And Babylon began immediately to work to re-educate them, especially taking away their identity. So, I, so I've you know, I've really been pouring through this and trying to see, trying to connect some dots. And uh, again, I, I really like the history and I think that every word in scripture is deliberate and intentional by God. And so I don't think that there are hidden things. So I try to scour through as much as I can and see this, but I've always found it interesting. You know, there was three of them that we know their name. Daniel, anybody else remember? She Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's funny to me, we call Daniel by his Hebrew name. We call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names. It's interesting.
1: Daniel's name,
0: my first name, Daniel, God is my judge. God is my judge. He gets it quickly changed, and he's given the name Belteshazzar meaning not God is my judge, that Baal, Baal will protect me. I think we ought to call these guys by their original names. Let's break that down for just a moment. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Daniel. I know it's really going to be hard to remember those names, right? Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. I mean, it's like what on earth could compare to God? Azariah means whom Yahweh helps. So they were kidnapped to Babylon somewhere around 605 BC. Hananiah became Shadrach. His name is changed from Yahweh is gracious to may Baal protect his life. Mishael moves from what could compare to God to who compares to Aku, their moon god. Azariah is given the name Abednego, shifting from Yahweh helps to I help Nabu. Now again, I don't expect you to have this great Uh, uh, history of the gods of Mesopotamia. But among the gods of Babylon, Nabu was the son of Marduk. Again, I wouldn't even advise you to take notes on this unless you just want to go back and study it. Uh, Marduk is the supposed creator and sustainer of all things. He's the one that, that the that they would sacrifice their children to to appease him. And we know that Marduk, while he was a Babylonian god, they actually took him from the the Assyrians, and the Assyrians took him from the Canaanites, and the Canaanites took him from the Sumerians. And these these gods are just reinvented into every culture throughout the Old Testament. But Marduk apparently had a son named Nabu. He was all-knowing, all-seeing. And so they take their chief gods and they begin to name these boys who were named from Yahweh, stripping their identity and their faith in the one true God of Israel and giving them the name by their gods. Marduk, by the way, the Sumerians and the Canaanites would have called him Baal. Eventually, so did the Babylonians. When Medo-Persia took over the Babylonian empire, they also called him Baal. Why is it important? Subtle, but an intentional shift in identity. That's what Babylon is going for. A very intentional shift. Every time these boys heard their name, they're reminded of pagan gods instead of the one true God. It's important. You Think about how these faithful parents intentionally named them after Yahweh. And in a moment, these pagans stripped their identity away. It was one opportunity for them to hear God's name often as their name is called. They hear the name of God and they hear their calling in life to follow after him and this is stripped away. Think how insulting it is that that God who has been investing in these boys has his honored, revered name replaced by these pagan gods. But you know, you could take God's name away but his promises will always remain intact. It actually seems to embolden these young men. His power stays enforced. In fact, God is not threatened when his name is removed. He stays just as faithful. It's also interesting to me that this captivity is a punishment for the ungodly. That's the purpose of it. Jeremiah tells us that. It's a punishment for the ungodly, and yet every story that, we, that comes out of the Babylonian captivity is the righteous that also find themselves in captivity. It's the stories of how we hear from, in, in the book of Daniel at least how God establishes the faithful among the faithless and how it's almost like the point of this wasn't just to do damage and to be angry and mean at the ungodly. It was to establish the faithful as as witnesses among them. And it makes it so much more obvious to stand up in Babylon than it was to go through the motions and stand up in Israel. The point of these stories seem to be when you're facing your greatest fears, we need to use faith instead of the fear. And the godly always perseveres. God uses his people despite their circumstances. Fact orchestrates their circumstances so that their faithfulness can become more obvious to the faithless. Maybe could change their names, but he couldn't change their hearts. Even while they were bearing the names of Babylonian gods, these boys trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they remain steadfast all the way through. He changed the culture around them, including their education and their clothes and their food in an effort to give them this movement from the children of God's culture and assimilate them into a pagan culture and compromise and eventually forget that they had a relationship with God, but they would not. History tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar was a terrible, terrible man. Temperamental, erratic, he gave constant threats of murder to anyone who doesn't do whatever it is that he asks. That's his reputation, not just in Scripture, but even in history. Don't cross him. Don't disobey him. For instance, in Daniel chapter 2, he has a dream. He doesn't understand the dream, and so he brings in all the wise men from all of Babylon, and he says, all right, guys, I've got a problem. I've had a dream. And I want you to tell me, number one, what the dream was because I need confidence that you know what you're talking about. Number two, I need you to interpret the dream for me. So I need, I need you don't just come in here and start talking about things. I need you to tell me what the dream was. Listen, he says, if you don't tell me what the dream is and what the dream means, I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's it's pretty high stakes. Well, none of them could do it. And Daniel is a wise man. Daniel comes in and says, oh, king, don't. He begins to pray. He takes these three boys. They begin to pray. And they ask the Lord, the Lord will reveal this to us. And the Lord does. And he goes and he begs for the life of all of the wise men of Babylon. And they kind of Daniel kind of becomes a hero to them. He saved their life. He says, oh, king, here is your dream. You had a dream about a huge statue. And it's made out of four things. The top part of it, the head and the shoulders are, all, are made out of gold. And that represents your kingdom. The chest represents silver and the silver part of this talks about kingdoms and the silver is going to overtake the gold. An inferior kingdom will overthrow your kingdom. And then the legs, the legs are iron and an inferior kingdom to the silver is going to take over the silver. And ultimately there are feet of clay. You ever heard that? Feet of clay, iron and clay, and that last, that really inferior kingdom that nobody can understand is going to take over that kingdom. And ultimately, when all is said and done, there's going to be a rock that comes against all of the fragments of these kingdoms. And that rock is going to establish a kingdom that will not end, O king. Nebuchadnezzar went, that's pretty good. I'm promoting you to the chief wise man. Well, thank you, king. Thank you to the Lord. All right. So now if you were King Nebuchadnezzar and you just found out that you were the head of gold, that's great news. I mean, I already knew it, right? If you're Nebuchadnezzar, I already knew I was the head of gold. But now what I'm worried about is this kingdom of silver coming against me. Now, ultimately, we know that the the small Medo-Persian empire took over Babylon and the, the not very great Greek empire took over that one. And lastly, it was Rome that overtook that one. And we also know that the Antichrist, the the kingdom of Antichrist is going to be a resurrected Rome. And Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, is going to destroy that ultimately. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Daniel is giving us end time prophecy from the very beginning. And God revealed it to wicked King Nebuchadnezzar so that David could preach the gospel. Well, anyway, fast forward. If I'm Nebuchadnezzar, what I'm wanting to say is all right, well, I, you know, I don't know about this whole silver kingdom thing, but here's what I'm going to do I'm going to erect a statue of gold. Hmm. A statue of gold, and I'm going to go ahead and get ahead of this inferior kingdom and I'm going to demand that people worship at the foot of that statue. And by the time that silver empire comes, I will have the loyalty of all the subject of the world. And I will override this dream that God gave me, interpreted by Daniel. That's why I believe he did it. It's the very next thing that happens. And by the way, this this statue, 90 feet tall, I want you to look up. This statue's over twice Higher than this ceiling. This isn't just a little thing. 10 feet, almost 10 feet wide. It's, it's, it's enormous, out of gold.
1: Um, maybe, maybe he's a
0: little egotistical. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 7. All people, all races, all nations, all languages must fall down and bow at an appointed time when you hear all the the, the musical instruments playing and, and worship it. Or you'll be thrown into the blazing furnace. I think of the furnace that was probably created to build the statue to begin with. This demand, this wall now is arrogant, erratic, confident, self-serving, short-sighted, and very inclusive. It's created to build loyalty. And when silver comes, I'll be ready. Now, it seems to be appropriate to remember that James told us to count it all joy when we go through various trials because they help us to become mature in Jesus. But let's, let's kind of disconnect for just a moment and it seems to me that the American dream Christians are confused when it comes to the goal of their faith. Now listen, our, our faith does not exist for our ease. It doesn't exist for our blessing. It exists for His glory and His blessing. Our faith isn't built so that we can declare things to God But everything about our life is orchestrated and we endure difficulty that God orchestrates and we begin to mature in our faith so that we can declare things about God. Now listen, I want us to be really specific here for a moment. Many people that I talk to that call themselves Christians, their faith is all about them. It's all about their comfort. It's all about what they have or how they pray and what they need. And, and listen, I want, you to be, I want you to hear this very clearly. I'm in a lot of groups where I pray, and I ask people from time to time, you have anything I can pray for? You know what most people say? No, things are pretty good right now. What in the world? You only pray when things are bad? What are we passionate about? Where are we broken for people? Where are we wanting to see God's reputation restored and his influence increased? Those are the reasons to pray. Those are according to God's will. Not, I don't feel good today. Pray that I feel better. Or I, I wish this thing would happen in my life. Well, I'm tell you, I believe that there's a lot more going through the motions than we recognize in American Christianity.
1: Our Faith exists for his glory, not our glory.
0: I want to talk about two types of faith. If you are a note taker, I'd like for you to write these down. I want to talk about what if faith. And I want to talk about even if faith. What if faith focuses on the power of circumstances in our life? You know, we keep our eyes on the storm. We keep our eyes on the sickness. We keep our eyes on whatever our issue is. We keep our eyes on whatever it is that we're afraid of. And we're trying to anticipate everything about it so that we'll know what to do next. We're trying to control it. We're trying to manipulate it. We try to avoid it. We try to speak into it. This is a what if faith. and You go through your life saying, well, what if this? And what if that? And what if this? And what if that? And what if? And what if? And what if? And we spend most of our life what ifing. anticipating Proverbs chapter 16, verse nine, though, it says a man's heart makes his plan, but God orders his steps. So you can what if, if you want, but God is the one who orders our steps, which brings us to an even if faith and even if faith focuses on the power of God, not on the power of circumstances. Uh, Even if faith doesn't consider the options. It doesn't focus on the cost of the decision. It doesn't lament. It doesn't fear. It doesn't worry about consequences. It doesn't concern uh, itself about what might happen if we stand up. It doesn't say, what will people think? It doesn't say, what if I do this? What's the backlash? No, I think I'm just going to sit right here. After all, the law has said or people will think We just relegate ourselves over into the corner and just wait for God to come when God is already here. It says, I have no idea what God is going to do, what God is doing, but I know this I trust Him and I am His and He is mine. It's a Job kind of faith in Job 13, 15, where He says, Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Even if faith comes from trust, and trust is built through depending on faith, and faith is built from standing in the midst of difficulty. Take this, These Hebrew boys, their parents did everything right. Boy, terrible things happen when you do right things. Well, maybe in the middle of the story. But they're being established through all this. They've been through a lot kidnapping, brainwashing, reprogramming, stripped of their identity, stripped of their family, and now they're forced to bow to an idol or die. But listen, we don't find them what ifing. If you look at every point of their story, every difficult day of their life, they are learning to even if instead of what if, fortified instead of weak. We don't find them what ifing. Their answer didn't even take a thought. And so the context here, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 3, many of the uh, Chaldeans, that's another, that's what the Babylonians called themselves, they noticed that these boys, these Hebrew, young Hebrew men were not bowing. And they had these the Hebrews, the Jews, Jewish boys had been promoted over the nationals. And they didn't like that very much. And so they became tattletales. And so they went to the king and he said, we noticed that these these Jews, specifically these three, they don't bow at the point in time. Get them, king. The law says you have to. Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, I love the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I've made, Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. An expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. Well, because these mighty men were burned alive, and Shadrach, Meshach weren't. So he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said, True, O king. He said, answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head was not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And there probably is no other way for the gospel to come to Babylon than this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So we begin with Nebuchadnezzar in this furious rage. I love the the, the kind of the, the detailed language that is in chapter three. It's like this constant detail that we get. Furious rage. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar cared for them. He'd invested a lot in them. They had already risen in some rank. uh, And so he, he did care for them. And his first thought is, oh, they have not heard the law. They would never disrespect me in such a manner. They had favor with him. Even though he's furious at them, he's giving them a second chance. I don't think very many people would have got a second chance from this dictator. He said, is it, is it true, he said? Is it true? Because I kind of doubt it. So he says again, let me explain it to you again. Let me tell you what's going to happen just so you'll know. And he gets to the end and he's like, so now you know when you hear this, this is what you're going to do. In verse 15, he says, so, so you guys need to really listen because there will not be, I'm not counting to three. <laughs> I'm not counting to three because if you violate this intentionally, there's not a God that can save you from me. Can you imagine the arrogance? There's not a God that could save you from me. Listen, we don't need to defend ourselves before the, before the world. <laughs> so Nebuchadnezzar finds out this wasn't an accidental omission. This was very intentional. They knew the risk, bow or fiery furnace. Esteem the king, or die in the fire. Now, I want to make some comments because of the way I process this, the way I think I would have responded. I think if, if I am these godly, righteous men who had each other, insulated with each other, I think that they've, they've talked about it. They've made decisions together. They stay together at those times. They, they, they've, they've, they know what's up. They know the rule. And... I think they have considered the cost of, okay, well, this fire, while momentarily miserable, it's not eternal. If we renounce the God that's been faithful to us, we will actually, we will actually experience an eternal fire. So, you know, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw out the options. Do you want a temporary fire or do you want an eternal fire? Well, I think that's easy, right? C, No fire. No fire. But if you have to choose one of the fires, I'd say, Nebuchadnezzar, I prefer your fire over his fire. It's easy. I don't even have to think about it. His fire is hot, but it's temporary. Eternity's fire is eternal. We've considered our stand. We prefer your fire over God's fire. What if the story had been a little different. So let's just say they'll go along with it. They don't want to cause any trouble. You know, we don't know for sure, but we think that there's going to be an apostle way down the line that's going to say, honor the government. Do whatever they tell you to do. Well, that's not, by the way, what it says. But, you know, let's just play along with it. Let's just do what they say. God, you know, God, God will understand. In fact, God knows our hearts. So let's just bow before this. We know this isn't really a God. Let's just bow before it, go through the motions. God knows. God's bigger than that. I mean, look at all of the other Jews. There's not another Jew in Babylon that's not bowing before the statue. Just do what everybody else is doing. After all, you start comparing yourself to their parenting, comparing yourself to these coworkers, comparing yourself to these churches, comparing yourself to these Christians, you might be. Is somebody in here calling me. That's happened before. Everybody I know knows where I'm at right now. Somebody is calling me. Sometimes I watched. A, a, <laughs> I watched this week. I watched. A, I get a lot of weird stuff sent to me and uh, the preacher's preaching, and right back here, somebody left their iPad on stage, and it started ringing, and so he went back and got it and answered it, and it was the uh, bass player's wife was calling him on his iPad. He said, hey, listen, your husband's not on stage right now. He's already stepped off. By the way, where are you? Are you planning to come to church today? It's so funny. It's so funny, and then she hung up, you know, so I want to answer right now and say, where are you this morning? That stand in prayer. I don't know where I'm at. I don't even know where I'm at. <laughs> we start comparing ourselves to those around us instead of what has said what God has said, what God's expectations are. You know, we start normalizing. We start normalizing compromise. We start normalizing unfaithfulness. We start explaining it away, and we start talking ourselves into taking shortcuts, because we're better than them, better than them, better than them. We start feeling pretty good about ourselves, depending upon who we're comparing ourselves to It's not that bad, right? Listen to what James chapter 1 verse 21 says, "So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, and humbly accept the word of God has implanted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls." King found out about them because they were living out their faith, not because they were hiding. Sometimes we say we have a personal relationship with Jesus, and some people get away with saying, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus is a private, you know, it's a private person, how a person believes or how a person feels is private. So we don't want to force our faith on somebody. You know what? I don't think that's true. I don't think that's why we keep it private at all. I think the reason we keep it private is because we don't want to be held accountable for it. I don't think we want anybody to watch, keep it private. That's between me and the Lord. That's just because we're comparing ourselves to people that we know are following Jesus less than we're following Jesus. And eventually you get down where you might have a Bible, you might talk about prayer, you might talk about church, but we're just going through the motions. You know, what does God say to do? We do those things. What does God say to... You know, how are we supposed to express that? How are we supposed to make disciples? How are we supposed to lead our families? How are we supposed to, to, to minister to our neighbors? Yeah, just go through the motions, waiting for Jesus to come. So I want us to pay a little bit of attention, and uh, believe it or not, I'm almost done. Uh, in verse 16... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king. I'm just going to break this down a little bit. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You have no authority over us. We don't have to defend anything to you. You're asking us a question, and we're going to give you an answer, but not because we have to. We have no need to answer you. If what you say is true... If it be so, that if we don't bow, we go to the fire. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's three proclamations here. Number one, our God is able to deliver us. His method of deliverance does not determine our faith. He is able, Jehovah Yokel, Our lives and our deaths are for his glory. And it does not matter what happens to us. We know that whatever he wants is what he will get. And what he gets is exactly what we want. If he wants us to be preserved, he will preserve us. If we fry, we fry. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He will deliver us from your hand. I want you to notice that's a lot different than can. He can. He is able to deliver us from the fire, but he also might not. But he will deliver us from you we know this. After this day, we will not serve you anymore. We'll either die or your heart's going to change. But he will deliver us from you. I love that. This is not a he can and, and you know but, uh, positive thoughts. This is this is these three guys saying in unison. Uh, no, one way or another, you won't have authority over us anymore. But if not. He can deliver from fire. He will deliver from you. But even if we don't die or fry, we will not bow, O king. This isn't what if faith. This is even if faith. Hain law in Hebrew. Even if, regardless of what God does, we will stay faithful to him. Be it known to you, O king, the word there is yada. It means be on notice. Mark this down. Take out your pen and remember what we're about to say. We will not bow. We believe in him that we cannot see more than we believe in that furnace that we can see. Similar to what David said in Psalm 34.1. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. What he is meaning there is he's going to have trust in God and confidence in his love and his protection regardless of what happens. David is established, establishing an even-if faith. And he who stands for God in these moments are much more easily seen. They attract much more attention. The one who does not compromise gets to be the witness, but they also get to see the faithful promises of God fulfilled in their life. Faith is not about comfort. It's about confidence in what God is going to do regardless of the circumstances. It's not positive thinking that God, God's going to, I don't know how, God's going to pull us out of the fire. No, no, no. This is, we might go in the fire. These young men, they've been through a lot. We would even look at them and say, boy, hmm, they've had a really... Young men, they're really had, they've had a lot of things in their life. Maybe they need a break. God says, nope, all those things are for this thing. If it hadn't have been for all those things, I wouldn't have a witness in Babylon right now. No, 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 it's not time to let down. It's time to rev up. So, I mean, this is like, man, this story is about... Our faithfulness to his faithfulness, right? It's about us trusting him, him holding on to us, even when we can't, we can't explain it. We're going to believe it. Their entire lives has been lived in a fiery furnace. Their entire life has been in a fiery furnace. Refining, purifying, standing, growing, learning, heating up. And they have learned that God is faithful through everything they've been through to the point where they are ready to stand for a nation to a nation and declare what only those who have been through what they've been through can declare. God had already allowed them to go through slavery. God had already let them go through exile. God had already taken their mothers and fathers away from them. And yet here they say, no, God can deliver us. He hasn't. No, he hasn't, but he's been faithful. Understanding God's faithfulness is much better than avoiding fiery furnaces. God didn't rescue them from exile. God didn't rescue them from slavery, but yet they remain confident. They had their eyes set on a different kingdom, see? They weren't looking to Jerusalem. They were looking at another kingdom, an unshakable kingdom. And they trusted in God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to all of these godly men that God had seen all the way through, that mother and father had taught them about from their infancy. They didn't back down. They didn't compromise. They didn't give up on on God because things were hard and wasn't going their way. They chose to look at God, not fire. Like Stephen did whenever they pull up big stones to stone him. Recant or we're going to stone you. He didn't see the stone. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. That's what even if faith does, not what if faith. The secret of moving from fear to faith is focusing on God's plan and not devising your own. Very quickly, Nebuchadnezzar's outraged. He stokes the fire seven times hotter, has the boys tied up with ropes, ropes by his mighty men, marched up the furnace entrance. It's so hot, the guards, the mighty men, are burned alive from the heat. And even though the mighty men fall off the rail, that's the way the flannel graph is, right? They fall off the rail. Somewhere or another, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fire bound in their clothes bound in their hats the only thing that burned was the ropes that bound them i think it's funny they're freer in the fire than they were outside of it cuz jesus was with them now
1: they're just walking around with him
0: now these guys were they were already at peace right they're confidently at peace there's no reason for Jesus to appear in the fire for their benefit. They were already aware of his presence. Now, Jesus wasn't in a fire so that they could see him. He was in the fire because in just a couple seconds, Nebuchadnezzar's going to look in. Oh, that looks like one of the sons of the gods. I thought we just put three in there. There were three. You know them. Yeah, boy, boy. I don't know about all that, right? Wow. See, Jesus wanted Nebuchadnezzar to see him. That's why he established King Josiah to establish these young people to raise their children so that these children could be a testimony to wicked King Nebuchadnezzar and save an entire empire. Now, if you pick up any of that story at any specific moment, you might go, whew, God doesn't know what he's doing. But if you see that all the way through, it's holy smokes, quite literally. I just made that up right here, just now. Holy smoke. I'm on fire. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that was too much, right? Fire, get it, fire. Some of you, pull that out later. It's all right. Got to get to lunch. Who needed the witness? Those who had experienced strike three. Those compromising Jews needed to see their faith. That pagan culture of Babylon needed to see a true God protect his people. A pagan king needed humbling. Boy, I love this. At the end of his statement with a with a I must decrease, he must increase kind of a statement. Verse Was it verse 28? He said, he said, whoever disregards the statement of the king. I mean, it's almost like the thing I said, man, I was an idiot. Blessed be the one who did not do what I said do. I'm not sure if this is enough for him to be saved or not it certainly was enough for God to get his attention. You get over to chapter 4, verse 37. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. You know, he, he, he gets crazy again and comes back. And God actually gives him seven years where he loses his mind completely and he's grazing out in the field like a cow. I mean, it's, Nebuchadnezzar's got some, got some things. But God restores his mind, and here's what he says Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. (laughs) There, even if faith was established long before they needed it, they didn't wait at the mouth of the fire. They hadn't been compromising and now they've come to this mouth of the fire to make a decision. No, they were keenly aware of the faithfulness of God in their life every step of the way. And when the time came for them to change nations, they were able to exercise an even-if faith instead of normalizing unfaithfulness. Chris, I'm going to ask you go ahead and come if you will. <clears throat> I've asked Chris to sing a song as he sings. That's going to be our invitation today. But I want us to stake a flag in even if faith. And I want us to shift from what if faith. That faith that determine, is dependent upon circumstances. And I want us to make, and it may require repentance on your part. It may require an acknowledgement of the normalization that many of us have done in our everyday faith. But today I want us to make, I want us to, as Chris sings, I want us to just be able to pray as he sings and say, Lord, me too. I mean, I, I, I want to be able to stay regardless of what the circumstances are. I know that you are using me for your glory. You are faithful. And I want to cling to your faithfulness. You give us victory and I want your victory. I don't have to understand. I don't have to concern myself with the fears of a fire or, or, or fears of a diagnosis or financial ruin. Or I don't have to worry about any of those things because I know, Lord, that you are establishing in me a, a confidence in you that when that time comes, I'll be able to stand and say, I choose that God instead of my own comfort. And God will use those testimonies of faith to change empires. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.